0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Shout out to Filson and Hunt to Eat for sponsoring this show. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the more humorously named small game animals on Earth, the woodcock. Yes, snicker if you want. It is a real game bird, it is a fun game bird, it is a very cool game bird that is arguably the premier upland game quarry of the Northeast and the Upper Midwest. Today I'll be talking with my friends, Matt Soberg, with whom I've hunted woodcock in Minnesota, as well as A.J. DeRosa of Project Upland, which is one of the coolest, I don't know what you call it, it's a magazine, it's a website, it's a a film company, it does all things Upland and it's pretty kind of amazing what they do over there. We will be talking all about not only the biology of the woodcock, as best we can do, since none of us are actually biologists, but we do know a little bit about the bird. We'll talk about hunting woodcock both with a dog and without a dog, how to find them, where to find them, and of course, how to prep and cook and eat this amazing bird, which is a little bit different from pretty much every other one of the game birds that we are discussing in this season of Hunt Gather Talk. So without further ado, let's take it away. Matt Soberg and AJ DeRoso, welcome to the hunt gather talk podcast this is a an unusual episode in that you, neither of you guys are biologists and I obviously am not a biologist so we're gonna kind of muddle our way through arguably arguably the most iconic upland game bird at least in the the, the east of the Mississippi and definitely in the North woods with the possible exception of the roughed grouse yes. We're gonna talk about worm burglars the North American woodcock welcome guys
1: Thanks Hank uh, appreciate it I'm I am not a biologist you're right but I like to call myself a barstool biologist often so.
0: <laughs> and this is Matt right so yep, so, so Matt at the beginning let's let's just say uh, you know I hey, this is Matt and uh, and then once we get a little bit into the conversation people will be able to recognize your voices
2: hi uh, this is AJ uh, thanks for having me on Always been a fan of your work. And uh, great to be on here with Matt. I've known Matt for a long time. Learned a lot from Matt, so definitely a cool opportunity. So thank you.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, AJ.
2: Um, I'm the creative director of Project Upland from New England. Uh, I live up in New Hampshire right now. Passionate hunter of woodcock. Where I live in this part of the country, Um, the grouse populations from, you know, essentially central New England to southern New England are are pretty low. So um woodcock fill a lot of gaps when you don't want to make that two three hour drive to get on grouse so woodcock have certainly become kind of a a cornerstone species for me um you know i chase them as far as connecticut i was hoping to chase them further this year but with the state of the world I've, i've i've passed that off till next year so
0: life in the time of rona totally all right matt You, I know, uh, you and I have hunted together uh, for Woodcock. and We'll get into that in a little bit. But you've had a number of hats. You used to work for Rough Grouse Society, and you're now the editor of Covey Rise magazine, right?
1: Yep, that's right. I edit Covey Rise. Um, Before that, I worked with AJ for a while. And uh, before that, I um, was the editor and director of communications for the Rough Grouse Society uh, for about seven years. And interestingly, when when I was there, um, I helped. Um, RGS started the American Woodcock Society probably about four or five years ago now. So I live in the North Woods. Um, I can hunt woodcock. Luckily, this time of year, you know, 15 minutes from home. Um, so I I love woodcock. I think they're an underrated game bird for sure. And I'm excited to talk about them today.
0: I just I'm from New Jersey, so I even though I'm 50 years old, I have the mind of a 12 year old. And, and when you said I love woodcock. All these jokes got into my head. So let's just get this out of the way right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Should be on a t-shirt, I think.
0: <laughs> I bet it is. And if it's, it's not, lovely. I'm I, I know Matik Putellus from Hunt to Eat. I can make that happen.
1: There you go. I think you should.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so Scolopax Minor. So that's the Latin name of this bird. And Scolopax Major is a European woodcock, which I've I've actually seen them in taxidermy, and they are literally major they're about twice the size of our woodcock they're a big old bird so woodcock yes it's an it's an old name for it you hear timberdoodle. uh my favorite i heard this one from bob st pierre from pheasants forever he calls them worm burglars i love that one uh, <laughs> and you know i've I, I don't know if i coined this but i'd like to call them lumber dicks just because it's funny <laughs> uh, and you guys say that you have heard any number of other names for this bird
2: Oh man, Matt, I'm gonna let you go first because you've been hitting
1: around this lingo a lot longer than I have. <laughs> I forgot a lot of them. A couple, a couple that come to mind. Um, Mudbat is used mud quite often. Mudbat's great. Yep. Yes. Bog sucker is another one. Um, and then when I was hunting them down in Louisiana, the locals down there, um, the coonasses, I guess they, they, they're okay if you call them that actually, but they call them big bat birds, big um, bat birds. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. You, you guys are going, going to hunt those big bat birds today is what they say.
0: Well, I definitely want to talk about hunting them in Louisiana when we get to it, because yep. every, almost everybody thinks about hunting woodcock as a, as a Northwoods thing. You know, it's the thing that you do when the tree peepers are out looking at the fall colors. And then there's this whole other culture of hunting them where they spend the winter.
1: Yeah, that's right. They're migratory birds, just like ducks. And so that it provides more of an opportunity um, regionally to hunt them at certain times when they're flying through. You know, you can hunt them in their wintering grounds way down south. There's even opportunities in their flyover spots, like in certain areas in Missouri, for example. You can hunt them as long as you time it right. So um, some people like to follow the migration and hunt hunt woodcock. And it's not just like grouse, just in the Northwoods only. You know, you can do it in other places as well
0: let's start with a little bit of the biology of this bird so as we've alluded to in the funny names for it woodcock are arguably the only game bird that we hunt that there's a few waterfowl that will that will make the exception to the rule but other than for sure woodcock are the only upland bird that we hunt that has a diet virtually 100 percent of animal matter they are they're not obligate earthworm eaters, but earthworms are their primary their primary prey and that's why they have that big long beak. And I've read any number of food habit studies of this bird. And millipedes, centipedes, uh, bug larvae, they've even been known to actually eat vertebrates every now and again. There have been scattered reports since the 1930s of scientists finding, Bits of frogs, bits of very tiny salamanders in their in their in their crops and in their stomachs. So they are interesting in the sense that virtually all the other upland animals, to begin with, you know, whether the rabbits or squirrels or or all the birds, are seed eaters or berry eaters, and this is the only bird that isn't. Um, the you know the 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 upland birds, I'm um, separating away from. Water birds, in a sense, because you know, snipe are primarily uh, invertebrate eaters, and then there's a number of ducks that are primarily uh, invertebrate and, and fish eaters. But if you think about snipe, snipe is, of course, kind of like a cousin to the woodcock, and just like you said, Matt, you know, bog sucker is another name for it, they live in wet places. So, when you guys give us an idea of if you're looking for woodcock. What is what's the terrain you're looking for?
2: Uh, I mean, on the take for New England, um, you know, a big thing is always having an open area for birds to land, especially with a migration. But that can be a pretty small area. But anything that's immediately wet, um, you know, they're not going to live in standing water, per se. But I have certainly seen like when the birds come back north in the springtime, Uh, you know, we've gotten some heavy snows up here where you know, a storm will come through and dump a foot, two feet of snow in the ground, and they'll what they'll do is stand in brooks and, and feed that way if they have to. But, um, you know, that soft soil or rich in organic matter is a big thing. Um, I actually have a buddy who's a works for Mass Wildlife and is a trapper who takes um, soil data, GIS soil data and then wetlands data and essentially overlays soil that's uh, rich in earthworms with, you know, moisture and essentially targets woodcock like that. Um, You know, they like dense cover. So really anything that, you know, the simple rule of thumb is anything that sucks to walk through. (laughs) Woodcock's probably interested in living there. Um, But more recently, I've certainly found them a lot in uh, almost like, I guess you call it like a pine barren. So uh, soft covers or, or, you know, what you call a conifer cover where it is immediately next to thick, wet areas, but they're um, in the understory of that conifer because it's really easy for them to walk um, in it. Um, so I, I've definitely seen that trend more. I'm, I'm by no means an expert, but definitely, uh, you know, my dog has a, a nose that finds them. So it's all the nose and these are the places we're finding them. So,
0: What's your experience been, Matt?
1: Yeah, that's interesting, a a lot the same, honestly. Um, You're always looking for wet areas, um, soft, loamy soils that are either within or next to um, heavy cover, just like AJ said. Um, Here, and it's interesting, depending on where they migrate or where you're hunting in different regions, there's little intricacies that are just a little different in every different place. Um, In the Northwoods here in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, the, the easy one is to look for young timber cuts, you know, oftentimes young aspen that's anywhere between probably three to eight, maybe 10 years old. It's that super thick aspen that you, I mean, you couldn't even throw a football through it. It's so thick and it's oftentimes, in, especially in the low bottoms, um, it has the, that soft, loamy soil that you're looking for. Um, and then like AJ said, the conifer, the young conifer stands too can be good i just hunted um the minnesota opener happened a couple days ago and um i got a bird on sunday and it it wasn't in the aspen it was actually in one of those small little conifer stands and for some reason they weren't even in the aspen at all they were there so it's sort of the old saying goes they are where you find them but um once you look for that soft foamy soils and the thick cover you have a good shot at it
0: i've had some experience in places like missouri and such which are more of you know kind of hopping spots you know they stage up in the north woods all across the top of the country now let let me stop for a second to to tell the listeners that woodcock pretty much only exist from the edge of the great plains to like labrador you know they're they're an eastern bird they do they don't live where i live in california they don't live in the rockies they don't live really in the great plains at all and they don't live in the desert southwest and They do get to sort of eastern part of the Dakotas a little bit, kind of, sort of. And I have seen them in Missouri, and they exist in eastern Texas in the wintertime. But you're really talking about a bird that's – it's the province of the east. And I mean the Midwest I I include in the east because I'm on the other coast. So you're talking about all of the kind of landscapes that are there. One thing I've noticed in the hopping states, kind of like when they're on their way down to go to where they're going – is they will be in a little bit more open area. I was foraging in Missouri in 2018. I was just looking for mushrooms because I had a day off. I was on book tour, and I just there was this wildlife area. It was perfect. Looked perfect for mushrooms. It was the perfect weather, and da da da. And I'm walking the. And I I swear to God, there I must have jumped 15 woodcock. And it was open ish. You know, I mean you're in the forest, but easy walking. I could have thrown a rock at them had I been able to see them beforehand. And I can only imagine that they were all there because probably nobody ever hunts them and they felt safer. I've
2: I've read uh, something recently. We we did an audio recording of the book Woodcock Shooting, which was written in 1908 by a gentleman, Enmett Davis, who's a New Englander from Rhode Island originally. And there was a part in there that he wrote about um, they were finding Woodcock in the wide open in uh, areas that had been burned. Um, which I was just like, I mean, there's some parts of that book where you, you're, you know, reading it and you're just like, wait a minute, what? Like, you know, it's like, I don't know. I got an email, a biologist and asked this question, which I actually did do. But ironically, about a week after I had read it, I had a friend who was hunting a pheasant stalking site in New Hampshire and they had done some burning in the area. And he said when they were walking across this wide open burned area, they started flushing woodcock. Which, you know, that was like, it was just so weird that it was in the same week that I heard these things. But apparently it's a thing from what I got for a response from a biologist is it had to do with exposing the undersoil and an opportunity to essentially get to worm rich soil that had not previously been accessed and also that the fire can bring the worms to the surface.
0: So Hmm. Uh, that I have heard that the it's rain after fire that brings the worms up to the top and they and they will turn that soil. So, Matt. Tell me about what did it look like where you were hunting them down in the in the deep south in Louisiana?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing it for probably five or six years now. When I started, I actually started hunting in the Piney Woods of East Texas. And even there, the habitat is different than Louisiana. So I'll talk a little bit about both. When, when I started in East Texas in the Piney Woods, there's just like the name, there's lots of conifers and pines and, and that type of um, uh, tree growth there. And I had a hard time finding birds. I didn't have a lot of help. And so I just kind of did it on my own and scouted it out and, and figured out that, you know, kind of keying off the soil types again, um, river bottoms and stream bottoms where there was lots of vegetation. They don't, they don't have the timber cutting like we do up here. Anywhere where there there was wet soil next to some heavy vegetation, whether it was cane or ferns or or, uh, plants like that is where we found them there. And then Louisiana is a little bit different. It's wet just about everywhere in Louisiana, very swampy. Um, The soil is perfect there. That's probably why it's one of their primary wintering ground areas. And uh, it almost seemed like just about anywhere you went. Again, connecting the dots between um, the wet soils and uh, the heavy cover you found Woodcock in Louisiana.
0: I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt to Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw T-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes. Hats and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the hunter, angler, gardener, cook logo on them. If you use the code Hankshaw at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. You know, we'll get into the hunting in a little bit, but it sounds to me that, that Louisiana might be sort of the the best kept not secret. Like I think everybody <laughs> kind of knows that they're all there, but I I can't I know exactly one Louisianan who hunts them now i mean i'm sure there's lots more but it's not a thing there like it's they're all duck hunters there
1: yep that's right and yeah the locals don't hunt them a lot um but the secret's getting out i know it's been a trendy thing to travel to the wintering grounds here probably over the last up to eight years i would guess um just okay. it's it's just a lot of uplanders trying to you know what i say prolong the season you know i got a lot of guys from maybe up here that our seasons are over, but you can still go and maybe hunt 30 days of woodcock down in the wintering grounds, and they're trying to take advantage of it.
0: Any of you know what they do in the summertime? Like, where do they go and what are they doing when we're not seeing them on the migration?
2: Well, they, they come back north. Um, so essentially, you know, we're places where like me and Matt live. You know, we have what you'd call like a resident bird. Um, so they come to nest, um, and it is, and Matt, correct me, I think you'd, he'd totally know this a little better, but I believe that sometimes after they nest, they'll actually move north again, um, in some areas. This year, I actually had birds nesting in my backyard, which was super unusual. I know the population's really up high in the Eastern flyway this year, but, um, the whole idea is there's this whole other kind of spring, summer aspect of woodcock culture. So they do this ridiculous uh kind of sky dance um that you know people have come to know where people go out and watch them in fields uh, and these male birds will display for these uh for these hens and then they actually will strut around and fan out their little woodcock teeth as we call them the tail of the birds and put on this whole display and eventually you know they'll nest and um whatnot but you know residentially for the summer uh pretty much they're they're staying in those areas you know which again i i would i would think And Matt, I mean, you know, you'd probably know a little better, but I got to think there's resident birds even in places as far south as Connecticut. And uh, I know there's some areas in Massachusetts for sure. And I mean, I have resident birds. I mean, I I train my dog starting in, you know, late August on Woodcock, right where I live. So
0: that is interesting. Um, Very few migratory game birds that I'm aware of really actually do nest and and spend their summertime in the U.S. Almost all of them go to Canada somewhere, and I'm I'm guessing there's probably some that are in Ontario and southern Quebec and that kind of thing. But may, you know, they aren't a real hardy bird. I mean, they don't have a lot of down on them, and they're not super foofy. So I mean, I, you, you'd imagine they wouldn't be in, say, the boreal forest or the or the tundra. So maybe maybe they are sort of our bird of the deciduous forest.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think the majority of them probably migrate north of here we do have a lot of um what we would call resident or local birds that that nest here as well um but we see we see the migration come through when you can time it right in early to mid-october when they're migrating through it's you know there's a lot of birds that were north of of where i live and they're coming through all during maybe a two to three week period sometimes even even shorter. And so a lot of them go further north. But like AJ said, um, the, the recent woodcock migratory woodcock research that um, groups like RGS and AWS are doing, they're, they're learning that there's, there's actually birds that don't migrate as far north, maybe Connecticut, maybe Iowa even. Um, they don't go that far north and actually they stay in those more southerly areas longer than, than um, we originally thought.
0: Hmm. It's my impression that there really is no shortage of woodcock in the sense of a lot of the other episodes I do on this podcast, like sage grouse, or you know, where I just talked to a fish and wildlife biologist about the interior population of bandtail pigeons, and that one's a complete unknown. Where you know, there's cases where you almost have to justify sage grouse hunting because there's you know, there's not that many of them. Whereas I don't get the sense that there really is any great conservation issue with woodcock i mean there's obviously cyclical fluctuations based on any given year for weather but they are seem to be stable am i wrong
2: uh well you know matt obviously worked for american woodcock society and rough grouse society i i that's how me and Matt met each other i did you know a lot of film work originally before project upland had started and through that kind of stuff. And a statistic that I came across recently, and it was specific to the Eastern Flyway, but I'm sure Matt can kind of fill in the gaps. Um, it said that since we had started recording woodcock population since the 1970s, the population in the Eastern Flyway, because there is technically, we, we make it an imaginary line, we say there's an Eastern Flyway, so New England down to, you know, anywhere from Georgia to even back over to Louisiana, and then you know the upper Midwest down to Louisiana, East Texas. The reality is recent research has shown that they do jump across these flyways. Um, so it's, again, man-made. But this eastern flyway has marked a 1% decline every year since they started recording it in the 70s. Um, so there is an actual issue, and Matt would be able to explain this way better, but this theory of you know, if if you make it, they'll they will come. As far as habitat is concerned, and the biggest thing is making safe stopover habitat, essentially from where they nest in the north all the way down to where they they winter in the south, is the the major issue. And in certain areas, it, it becomes exasperated because of things like cities or uh, even you know um, uh, you know wind energy stuff like that. I mean, not that I think that they're getting taken out at mass quantities, but on that book, Woodcock Shooting, that Edmund Davis looked, he he talked about the atrocity of telegraph lines killing these mass amounts of migrating Woodcock, which is just so funny to hear. Um, So, you know, we have kind of our new version, whether it's skyscrapers or, or windmills or whatever it might be.
0: I have heard about and I've seen pictures of Woodcock that brained themselves on skyscrapers in Manhattan even.
2: Yeah. Yeah. When I when I used to work in Boston, you know, my office was on State Street. And um, I would find Woodcock regularly dead during the migration that would hit, uh, you know, the State Street building and just that's it. They'd just be dead in the
0: middle of State Street. Wow. You know, of course, you put them in your pocket and ate them for lunch. right? <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, of course, I was the only guy walking by in a suit that knew what they were would stop and be like, oh, man, this poor Woodcock.
0: <laughs> you shout, you shot on the corner of a busy Boston street. "Wood penis? <laughs> 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 and then you got arrested. So okay, so there it's an issue of habitat apparently. So what what is declining that is causing them to decline? Do you know this anything about this, Matt?
1: Yeah, a little bit. To piggyback off of what AJ was saying, I think part of the problem with um, maybe a misunderstanding of woodcock populations is um, we think they're they're stable, maybe because we see a lot of them when we're hunting and they're relatively easier to find in higher numbers. Once you figure out the whole game plan. So people think they're doing okay, But the 1% per year stat that AJ said, I believe, is correct. And when you, you know, maybe 1%, you don't think it's that much. But if it's consistent like that year after year after year, and it's having a significant impact. And the Woodcock population issue is a little more critical than maybe we originally thought. So and the the report, it's the it's the reports are done all by by the feds. Um, Because they're a migratory bird, and that report comes out every year. Um, Oftentimes, it's somebody posted on social media somewhere, so it's easy to find. But Federal Fish and Game, you you can see the report every year. And I recommend anybody that's interested in upland hunting or migratory birds or or woodcock hunting to check that out. It's quite lengthy and very scientific, but it kind of gives you an idea on on woodcock population numbers and by region and then also kind of gives you a heads up on how critical habitat um, work is necessary for them. I think because they're migratory, to get back to your question, um, it just all comes down to habitat. You know, we're losing habitat in the north, we're losing habitat in the south, we're losing habitat in between just because we're not scientifically maybe doing the forest, manage that, forest management that we were doing many, many years ago. And so it's affecting woodcock and ruffed grouse and cottontail rabbits and many other species of wildlife all, all the same.
0: What is disappearing that they need? Is it, is it clear cuts? Is it thinning? Is it just, I mean, woodlots in general? I mean, what's, what is the habitat that they need that is disappearing?
1: I think it's as simple as all of the above. Anything that's going to create young forest habitat, early successional habitat in areas where they can find food. And the early successional habitat is where they they need to hide from predators and areas where they nest and raise their young uh, for protection in close proximity to food. Um, At RGS, I think they still use the same term healthy forest. Forests with a, a wide variety of um, forest types and wide variety of age types from young forests to old forests. And unfortunately, on like, for example, the national forests in the east, because of funding and other reasons, they're not even able to do the forest management to their minimum goals that they want to do. And so the result is these forests are just continually growing older and older and older to the detriment of all the wildlife we talked about before that require young forests to survive.
0: Hmm. Funny side note. Um, the only animal that I know of that really, really digs the old growth forests in the east, at least the game animal, uh, uh, was the passenger pigeon. And there aren't any anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of the reasons why they thought that there were so many passenger pigeons when there were there was that we were cutting down the old growth forest and they needed that and they were looking for more old growth forest so they got into these gigantic flocks and and everything else likes the the middle aged forest so that's an interesting one. So you had mentioned a second ago, Matt, that you know the, to escape from predators. What are a woodcock's worst enemies? Who 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 strikes fear into the heart of a woodcock?
1: That's a good question. I I think any probably any airborne predator hawk species um and then the ground predators as well i'm assuming there's some mortality from s- skunks and raccoons and and uh any predators on the ground that find their nests and things like that i don't know if aj has any more ideas yeah on that.
2: i mean I, yeah similar to matt I, I don't know if i've ever really heard kind of a strict culprit but you know a unique thing about when they banned them because, uh, you know, wood, woodcock, like many migratory birds, they ban them for research. Um, the woodcock, the hen, will feign having a broken wing and fly away to draw the predator away. So that's what happens when you bring pointing dogs in to uh, find the nest. Then the hen will get up, pretend like she has a broken wing to draw that dog away from the nest. So, I mean, at least that behavior is conducive towards its used to dealing with predators in some capacity, especially in some kind of nest raid Um you know, whether that might be, again, raccoons and stuff like like Matt was saying or huge, you know, nest eaters. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that's interesting. So they do the same thing that the killdeer do in the parking lot of Costco. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Please tell me you've seen that. Like, first of all, killdeer are like the weirdest nesters ever. Like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a really good piece of uh, territory right there in a Costco parking lot. And <laughs> they're like doing the broken wing thing when people are trying to get their groceries. It's hilarious. I can't so, say I've seen that. <laughs> really? Oh, it must yeah, be. Yeah. Maybe it's a Western thing. I've seen it at least a dozen times. I mean, it's you're like, what is that? Oh, my God, it's a killdeer. Or it'll be in like a subdivisions, you know, like in the middle of a subdivision. Like they're just bizarre nesters.
1: They always like the baseball field back home. We're trying to uh, have spring baseball practice and playing center field and you're dodging birds on the on the field.
0: Let's get into hunting a bit. How uh, how long have you guys been hunting woodcock? And, and what got you into it?
2: Oh, for me, um, you know, I, I started hunting woodcock when I was a, ki- a kid. Um, my father had a Brittany. You know, we'd hunt them in southern New Hampshire. Um, we still hunted grouse then. You know, they were still a somewhat stable population in southern New Hampshire. There isn't now. But um, so we would, we would hunt woodcock mostly. And um, we would get into a lot of woodcock. So I started doing it then. And then I kind of fell out of it for a while. I got back into it. Um, but I did it without a dog for a long time. I'd say three, four years I spent hunting woodcock pretty hard without a dog. And then I got a bird dog. And as as the story goes, it's all over from there. So.
1: Yeah, same for me. I grew up just shooting them every, every once in a while, sort of like on the side when you were rough grouse hunting. And I never really started targeting them um, primarily until... In college and after when I got into bird dogs specifically pointing dogs just because they they just lend themselves to being a great game bird for for young pointing dogs and so I got into it more seriously then and I I I seem to get more serious about it year after year from from then on
0: what makes them a good a good bird for uh, young dogs
1: um you can pinpoint Uh, high numbers of them in certain areas once you know the game plan and know the habitat and know the time when they're they're either here or migrating through and they hold tight they run I think more than people realize and we can talk about that later but in general they hold tighter for pointing dogs and so um, they allow for a young dog maybe who's just learning the game on wild birds to get a little closer to point and so it's the, just the frequency, the quantity, and then the ability to get in close to them. I think
0: the mental image of a woodcock running is making me smile. <laughs> I'm gonna post a video in the show notes of the the video that everybody has seen of the the woodcock strutting. It's to the to various songs, and it's it's that never gets old. It's hilarious. But they don't look like they're really runners. I mean, they've got little stumpy little feet, and they waddle kind of.
2: Yeah. It- Matt and I went on uh, the New England uh, grouse camp tour together. It's a whole man. I don't know how many years ago it is now, Matt, but um, you know, him and I shared a lot of windshield time back in those days. And we had went to a few areas and and I feel like this was when we first really started talking about this idea of running. And I know we say we're going to go down this rabbit hole later, but we were shooting a film in Western Massachusetts and it was raining out. And I mean, man, I don't know how many birds we saw just stand up and just, you know, walk at a brisk rate away from uh, dogs and and a lot of what we actually captured on film, which was really cool. Um, you know, and that debate has come up more frequently of whether or not they do move and and uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why, but I mean, I won't get into that right now. But um one of the sayings I want to say that I heard from Earl the Pearl, who's a hunting guide up in Minnesota, he's he we did a film with him one time and he said,, uh, I like woodcock because they honor the dogs, which is this idea that they're uh, more gentlemanly towards a, a grouse dog in the North Country than a grouse is. Um, you know, grouse don't want to stay still, but woodcock will certainly give that. And, and it makes it easier, you know, for somebody who's, you know, novice like myself, um, you know, my first bird dog or whatever else, it's, it's such an achievable bar. Um, it's something that you know, you don't feel frustrated from as easily as trying to chase grouse. Um, you know, as Matt has said, when flights come through, there's just so many birds. Um, so it's it's you know, you can really get it right. and you know if your dog just decides he's being a shithead that day, then you know you can <laughs> you can at least not feel bad about the fact that uh, you know your dog messed up as many as it might of Um, So it's just a, a lot of just ample opportunity. And then you look at areas again that don't have wild bird populations like southern New England um and woodcock become really uh the only option you have if you want to hunt wild upland birds so so there's that aspect that lives with it again i mean i I said earlier in the podcast i I train my dog on woodcock um and if i didn't have woodcock here i i don't know what i would have to go do planted birds and i would have to keep pigeons or i'd have to do something else but you know it's it's really as far as that hurdle and especially getting into it and then just the pure enjoyment of it is it's just such an incredible animal
0: yeah, I mean my my friend who lives on Cape Ann in Massachusetts uh, a guy named Nate Grace he, he it's basically the exact same story He's, he does he does that big trip to Maine to go find ruffies but day in and day out on Cape Ann he hunts that woodcock migration and they go right through there and he does pretty well on them. I can't even imagine your situation though like I live in California and I don't know I mean was there like eight 12 different species of upland? game bird not not to mention all of the the ducks and geese and and shorebirds and things like it's it's virtually impossible to kill every huntable species of a bird in california in one year and there's just too many of them but out east it's it's just such a different story
2: yeah totally i mean it's you don't even you know i think back to the the episode that you did on doves, I mean, you know, you're you're originally from the Northeast. You can't even hunt doves <laughs> in right. pretty much any New England state. I, I believe there's a season in Rhode Island for doves now, but um, you can't hunt them in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, or Vermont. So, um, it's, it, you know, and, unless you're a, a duck hunter, I mean, obviously, the sea duck hunting and all that kind of stuff, you know, but waterfowl upland, that's a, you know, kind of big switch, so... Um, Especially if you have a Griffon that's afraid of water like I do,
1: <laughs> which is which
2: is my own fault. I shouldn't say it in a, a accusatory tone towards him.
0: <laughs> so, Matt, start. So you start first and then we'll go back to A.J. Design for me the perfect woodcock hunting dog. Now, try to leave the breed out of it. What is it? What is this magical dog do that makes it perfect for a woodcock? And then so first Matt and then A.J.?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, you're setting me up to fail a little bit here. I think I think it it depends on your personal pre- predisposition on what kind of dogs you like um, and how they run and what sort of expectations you have for your dogs. So I'll give you two examples. Um, I've had some phenomenal woodcock hunting with Springer Spaniels. They work the cover like crazy, they stay close, um, especially after the leaves fall, once they, they'll flush them close, so you can anticipate the flush and you can get some really phenomenal wing shooting over flushing dogs, so that that's an idea, maybe a, a springer or a cocker or a closer working flushing dog is good. Um, personally, I prefer pointing dogs and I like long-legged athletic dogs that cover ground and point and hold tight um, that's just more exciting for me. Um, so they they got they got to cover ground. They got to find the birds on their own. Sometimes they'll range pretty far, but once they find them, then you you have the ability to walk up and flush the bird yourself. Um, that's that's just the type of, of wing shooting and, and bird dogs that I prefer.
0: AJ?
2: Yeah. So you know, similar sentiment to Matt. I mean, I actually had some chances to hunt over uh, American Cocker this past year, which was pretty mm-hmm. interesting because I had never done that up in Maine um so really, those are the teeny really, ones right yeah just i mean they just make your heart melt <laughs> um, they're just cool cool dogs but um you know the the interest you know both matt and i come from kind of this pointing dog world and um especially in grouse country you know setters kind of rule the world um pointers are pretty popular as, as in we won't call them english pointers because that would be incorrect in the united states but i'm talking about a very specific breed when i say pointer not um, kind of the, all the pointer breeds. Um, you know, I have a Griffon. So Griffon's the interesting thing is that they're a dog that's known for working closer. They, they were one of the first dogs in Europe that were bred for the foot hunter rather than hunting on horseback. Mm -hmm. Um, so when it comes to grouse hunting, a dog staying close can make a great tool for action, especially in areas where birds are really, you know, jumpy and wiry, where it can become a moment when I start to think about hunting over setters, whether it's, you know, Nick Larson and his dogs or all the other people that I know in Minnesota that everybody seems to own a setter. It's, if you're in a day that the woodcock are sparse in a cover, those dogs are going to get out there and they're going to find them. Um, So, you know, if my dog's only working at 50 yards, I mean, I have to cover a lot more ground on those same days than when you have a dog that is going to run out to 100, 150, 200 yards. And because the bird itself is conducive towards staying for that dog uh unlike grouse um it makes for a lot more of an exciting uh kind of moment and actually what what brings me back to this this moment is actually a hunt that Nick uh that Matt and I were on together and we were in Vermont with the uh folks from Orvis and Scott McEnany had his uh setter out unbelievable dog I actually started hunting in Michigan and in Vermont and we were hunting this um this north face of this mountain And I mean, this dog would go out and just find these birds in in places that honestly, you know, me me and Matt were kind of looking at each other like I wouldn't even been looking for woodcock here. (laughs) And I mean, this dog would go and find these birds just anywhere. And then, you know, he'd look at us and be like, oh, dog's on point 150 yards, but we're in the mountains. So, you know, that's 150 (laughs) yards up or down. Um, In some cases, abandoned ski slopes. So you can just imagine what that's like. Um, So it's, it's that makes it really exciting. And those are moments when, you know, when if you do have a dog that's close working, you might feel a little more like, oh man, I just wish this dog would go out further. So there's a little bit of a, 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 you know, it's it's whatever your flavor is, that's the beauty of of upland hunting in general, is that, you know, we have this, it's like going to, you know, the ice cream bar and you can start with frozen yogurt, soft serve, hard serve, you know, all the different flavors, all the different toppings. And upland hunting is very conducive to that. Um, and so it's, it's really a user based experience. Um, but that's for me, you know, those days where Woodcock are spread out thin, I look at Grim and I'm just like, oh, man, dude, I wish you were really, <laughs> I wish you were further out there today. So.
0: Interesting. I, so the first dog I ever hunted Woodcock with was Finn the Finn the Lab It's Chris Niskanen's old dog. I don't know, 15 years ago, more than that. And obviously, it was a uh, she was a flusher and i actually like the flushing experience better because i get stage fright with pointed birds i my kill rate on especially woodcock where you have an english pointer uh or some other pointing dog that's like it's right there it's right there <laughs> it's right there and i'm like i know i know i know and and, and like then the thing the the bat gets up and like whiff, 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 you know, and it's just, oh man. And as opposed to either a flushing dog, a flushing dogs, nice. Cause it's like, Oh, the dog's birdie. Like I should pay attention now. And it's kind of a nice for me, at least mid range in the sense that, Oh, the dog's birdie. I should pay attention now. Oh, there it is. And then I'll, you more often than not kill it. But really I'm a dogless hunter. So the flush is always a surprise to me, which is probably why I'm a better shot. I'm a better snapshot than I am, um, you know, pointed like a setup shot. And I can't tell you how many times I've shot a limit of woodcock about 200 yards away from my friend, who's got the dog, and the dog is of course staying with him. And he's hadn't. I, I I I will often outshoot um, hunters with dogs. I think maybe because they're paying more attention to the dog and they're not, they, they don't have their head on a swivel the same way I do, because I know that I'm at a disadvantage and I'll also crash through the nastiest stuff ever. Like you were talking before about habitat. My old saying is like, if you can toss your hat and it hits the ground, there aren't any woodcock there. <laughs>
1: I'm, so I'm with, I'm with you, Hank. I, I admit it. Um, if I can, if I know where a bird is or if I can see it on the ground, could be a woodcock in front of a pointing dog or a grouse on a log. I'm trying to flush it. If I can see it on the ground, I don't know what it, I can't, I miss them, to be honest with you. I, they they never fly the way I think they're going to go. You know, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that anticipation, but I'm more more of a snap shooter, maybe more of an in, instinct shooter. Um. So I, I'm with you on that. I agree.
0: So, you know, they're not – everybody talks about how difficult they are to kill, and I don't find them hard to shoot at all. I mean, I find them – of all of the upland birds, they're slow. They go up, straight up, and then they go away. And I just – I don't find them overly challenging to to hit once they're in the air. I mean, it's, I mean, yes, I don't hit them every single time, but it could be because I am so much of a quail hunter – that i find mud bats to be significantly like oh yay i've got all the time in the world because he's going to go and go right up to the top of the, the alder thicket and then he's going to fly away so i usually catch him on the rise and if not then i'll just i'll just catch him and you know i mean i shoot you know if i'm in a, a state where i can use lead i'll use lead sixes on them or i'll use you know bismuth sixes on them because the the reason I do that is because typically I'm shooting through all kinds of sticks and things, and I don't want weak pellets to, to get deflected, and I want to put that bird on the ground. And also, you're hunting rough grouse as well, virtually every single time you're hunting woodcock, so that if a, if a grouse gets up, you want to put that bird on the ground as well. So what do you guys think about the, the flying abilities of, of these birds as well? And then talk to me about what kind of shot you use.
2: Oh, well— For me, uh, you know, it brings to two names that I think of of the woodcock mud bat, which they get their name for their erratic flying like a bat when they come up off the ground, essentially till they clear that canopy. And then the other name I've heard uh, is timber rocket, which was a couple of Minnesota folks that called them the guys from modern wild. And that's because once they clear that canopy, I mean, they are going Um, and there's kind of two schools of thought or I guess the I don't know if it's the correct way, but I, I've heard from very experienced woodcock hunters um, that letting them level out and then shooting is far more conducive than trying to shoot them when they fly like a bat. I'm like you. Once they start in flight, I'm, I'm emptying my gun. Um, I just there's something about that excitement of that that bird just fluttering in front of you and trying to hit that canopy and, and doing that. Um, you know, wide open chokes, hugely important. Um and the age old, uh, you know, kind of advice of, of hunting grouse and woodcock in the North country is ignore the trees. Um, if you're thinking about missing a tree with the barrel of your gun or where you're going to swing, you're always going to be missing, period. So you got to start swinging that gun and, and doing your thing no matter what and start unloading. I mean, it's kind of that if you don't have, uh, you know, if you don't have lead in the game, you, you don't have game on the ground. So <laughs> um, I, I hunt all steel now. Um, I usually use either six or seven steel um so that's what i stick to for shot size uh, if i can find sevens i'll use them but for the most part six six is kind of the easy one um i have hunted them with as low as number nines uh in lead which is the you know, mist work. of
0: death yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and it's
2: and it's like you're just bound to find a million you know number nines in your your meat <laughs> so i um, i've actually I, I've kind of learned the hard way that uh, bigger shot can certainly equate to uh, friendlier meat. So <laughs> um, obviously, you know, there's such thing as too big a shot that you'll destroy a bird as small as a woodcock. But um, I have since become a fan of that six-seven steel.
0: So yeah. Side note to that, I uh, if you go to d'Artagnan.com, so they're a they're a, a game purveyor and they are allowed to sell English hunted game in the American market. So they had some kind of freezer sale once, and, and they had a bunch of birds. I'm like, oh, why not? I'll, I'll buy some. So I bought some, and they were full of number nines, like <laughs> full of it. Look, so like Holly and I, I mean, we are huge hunters. We hunt for primary all of our all of our meat, right? So when we hunt lots and lots of birds. We had more shot in our meal from those Dartanian birds than I've ever had from hunted birds. And it's because we're, because like you guys, we're always using, we're not using eights or nines really ever. I used to use lead eights for doves, but, but you, steel eights don't work well. So, and we, we don't shoot lead anymore in California. So Matt, uh, same, same deal. Are you, are you, a, shoot them on the rise or you would let them level or, and are you shooting sevens as well?
1: Yeah, I think it depends a little bit on where you're hunting them and what type of habitat you're in. If it's, if it's a little more open, they could go anywhere. Left, right, up, anywhere. I've had them come back at me sometimes, where it's almost like you you look at them eye to eye, and, and it's almost like they're gonna poke your eye out. Sometimes <laughs> they could go anywhere. Um, I've seen that. Yeah, in Aspen stands, um, they can go anywhere, but more often than not, they're they're gonna do like like you guys are saying, fly till they get to the top of the trees, and then. That that's a good time to try to shoot them if they're not too close. You don't want to blow them up either. But you know, take them on the rise when they get when they get to the top. Again, they can go anywhere. It's sort of the the bat mentality, left, right, up, down, around. Um, and that's why I think they're sort of an underrated wing shooting challenge or opportunity. Um, they're easy for some people. They're very hard for for others. And uh, and so yeah. And then I use probably seven and a halves primarily just because I'm hunting grouse too at the same time. Um, and most of the shots in the North woods, when it's thick, even when the leaves are down are pretty close. So I've dabbled hmm. in eights and nines. Some um, when I know I'm going after woodcock primarily, but otherwise I, I stick with seven and a halves mostly.
0: Hmm. I, I stand by the the bismuth or lead sixes because Typically, when you're woodcock hunting, you're gonna a see woodcock, b hopefully see rough grouse, and c squirrels. And uh-huh. I, I, you can kill squirrels with sevens and eights, but I've had any number of tree squirrels laugh at you when you when you wing them with a bunch of sevens because they have a hide like nobody's business. But they can't get through sixes. And I have come home any number of times with all three birds in the bag or the two birds and the, and the squirrel in the bag. So it's kind of a good all-around shot from, for what I'm doing. Hey, everybody, I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt's Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, Absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. All right. So if you were going to tell a guy who who has never hunted woodcock before, let's say he lives in Colorado or, or something. Hey, man, I've never shot a woodcock. Where would you send this person and when would you send this person?
2: Oh, man. (laughs) Um, I mean, being a New Englander, um, it's really, I mean, I guess it's probably true for the upper Midwest, but, you know, you follow any of the major riverways, so the Connecticut River Valley, valley, stuff like that, and you're going to get higher densities. Um, They're like most migratory birds, they're going to follow some kind of landmark. Um, But I mean, it gets back to that idea of dense cover. So, you know, if I was going to simplify it, which I am a firm believer in that because, you know, as much time as I've spent hunting woodcock and grouse, I still have a lot of challenging difficulties with fully understanding and grasping what um, the, the biological uh, perfection of habitat is. So for me, it's just find things that are thick, find soil that exists and just find somewhere where they could have landed next to it. So um, any kind of overgrown fields in New England... Uh, any overgrown apple orchards are sure bets for good woodcock hunting, um, abandoned farmland, um, anything that would be conducive to really good soil qualities like that, and also thick cover. So so for New England, I, I honestly think in a way it's it's a little easier to say, hey, if you can find an abandoned apple orchard, or you can find an overgrown orchard, or if you can find an overgrown farm, you're going to find birds. Um and I'm, I'm sure, you know, you go out, you know, when I've hunted, it's, it's, you know, the beauty about the upper Midwest is that idea of the aspen. Um, I remember the first time I hunted Michigan, which was the first time I'd hunted the upper Midwest and saw all that aspens, aspen, and I was just like, I mean, mind blown. Uh, but you can't do that out here, unfortunately. Um, so, again, yeah, young cover, young soil.
0: Would you tell this mythical hunter from colorado to come to new england or would you send them to the up or wisconsin or oh or, boy you know that's the thing <laughs> or, or do you well, send it to louisiana in december
2: i mean you know i i've i've had i've had hunts in new england um that have been incredible where i've hit a flight right um but i have never experienced what i've experienced in the upper midwest um where it's just uh, you know flight pileups i mean the the western i mean the central flyway as it's called for which is where the upper midwest is is just a way higher density of woodcock than the eastern flyway so in that regard i would be of the mind to say you know go to the upper midwest um i don't have enough experience you know to say or no experience for that matter to go down south i know as somebody who's passionate about woodcock um you know from i remember riding in in the truck with Matt and talking about Louisiana and just being like, this is my bucket list. Like I got to do this. It's, it's like a Mecca, you know, idea. So, um, but there are places like, you know, I, I hunt Connecticut pretty frequently. And once that migration comes through, I mean, you have days that are measurably close to what the upper Midwest is. And I think that's just because of the lack of habitat. So they are forced to pile up in smaller areas. Um, but in the North country, New England, they're,
1: they're a lot more spread out. I would recommend that they, <laughs> I'm kind of a homer, but I would recommend that they come They come here. Um, we have lots Northern of- Northern pub-
0: Minnesota is what you're
1: talking yeah, about. Yeah, Northern Minnesota yeah. or Wisconsin or Michigan, That the Western Great Lakes. The thing we have going for us for upland hunting, grouse and woodcock, we have lots of public land, which on one hand is daunting because it seems like finding a good cover somewhere because there's so much public land to cover. It's like maybe- Seems like a needle in a haystack, but but it really isn't. I would I would tell them to cheat. It's really not cheating, but it but it sort of is. Um, the DNRs in the Western Great Lakes have done a great job at providing opportunities for upland hunters, whether it's hunter walking trails or rough grouse management areas or the gems program in Michigan. Um, they sort of point uplanders in the right direction. And so, for example, in Minnesota, if you go to the DNR website and you locate a hunter walking trail or a rough grouse management area, naturally those are named those because they provide walk-in only hunter access, but they've also been, um, there's been some habitat management along those trails at some point. So if you're just starting out as an uplander and you go to Minnesota, walk a hunter walking trail enough times, whether you have a dog or not. You're going to, by trial and error, if you put in enough time and effort into it, you're going to find birds that way. And it's a really good opportunity to sort of figure it out on your own. You'll pinpoint the habitat where you find the birds. You'll see aspen cuts. You'll see open fields. You'll see um, sloughs with alder edges. You know, And if you put in enough time and effort, you're going to find birds and figure it out pretty quickly.
0: That's good advice. What about guns? So I have found that Tinkerbell, my 20-gauge Uh, over and under it's a Franchi veloce and it's got a very short barrel and it only weighs about five and a half pounds and i've shot that one gun for i don't know 18 20 years it's a fantastic woodcock gun because it's it's little and it doesn't it gets out of its own way and i can snap shoot faster than a guy who's got a you know 28 30 inch barrel um i know guys who do four tens i know people who use 12 gauges so i'd be interested to hear what you guys do uh,
2: For me, um, one thing I've found, I think, is is in kind of this path of the uplands is that gun fit is so underrated in America. (laughs) Um, And I've certainly found once I've shot guns that were uh, at least close to my measurements or my actual measurements that I do significantly better. Um, I I gravitate towards 20 gauge. I switched to side by sides about three, four years ago. Um, I went down that uh, very stereotypical northwoods double gun path do you know um, how patches
0: on your elbows <laughs> I, I do not I don't. <laughs>
2: Not yet I, I gotta wear them in a little more but um you know so um you know i i, I went to side by sides um i'm a sucker for european made guns i collect them now so uh last year i shot uh I jumped between AYA 28 gauge and then a Savage Fox, a grade 20 gauge. Um, I, and that AYA was fit for me. So I did pretty well with it, it was the first time I uh, proactively hunted with a 28. Um, I really did enjoy that. Um, but you know, my first kind of gun that I did really well with Woodcock was actually a Frankie over and under as well. The Franke, Um instinct, uh, I believe it's called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I did really well with that gun shot, my first birds over this dog with it, um, traveled a lot with it. Um, it's, it's really, you know, it comes down to that kind of basic thing is whatever gun you can shoot well is the best gun (laughs) to use. But if you talk about, you know, culture, then yeah, side-by-sides is just like, there's just something about breaking out a side-by-side in, you know, the North country and getting out and, you know, whether it's some obscure company that's out of business to, uh you know a classic like a a fox or or parker um there's just there's just so much to it um but i think the most important thing is a gauge that makes sense for you i think 410s can be frustratingly challenged i've hunted with them i've shot woodcock with them i would never do it again um especially if you're there's grouse in the area but i would say 28 20 16 I'm I'm not a fan of a 12 gauge, but I'm five five and 145 pounds, so anything above a 20 gauge is not my friend. So
0: <laughs> ten, 10 gauge three and a half. <laughs> yeah, total yeah, to- <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So but, I, have I ever told you the story about the only one and only time I've I've shot a side by side?
2: Let's hear. He's oh, gonna tell us. Yeah, come on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was on book tour in 2016, I think it was, and I I, I have a real good friend who lives in Jogg County, Ohio. So we're going squirrel hunting, and at this at this point, I didn't actually have my guns with me for some reason. Usually, I put them in the back of the truck, so I didn't have any guns. And you know, Joe's like, "Well, you know, you can borrow this gun, and it's a side by side." And I was like, "Wow, that's a pretty nice side by side." And like, "Yeah, let's go squirrel hunting." So I look at this gun. I'm like, "Is this like some fancy English gun?" He's like, "Yeah, in fact, it is. It's a Purdy." And I'm like, "How the hell did you get a Purdy?" Like, "Well, so he had a friend who was older than him." And he was so old, he wasn't hunting anymore. And he just gave my friend Joe this beautiful, purdy 12-gauge side-by-side. I, the, I think the, the, the myth is real, man. Like, this gun was heavy, but when you held it at the chamber, it was weightless. Like, it was so perfectly balanced. It was really amazing. And So the only thing I've ever shot with one of these fancy-ass guns are tree squirrels. <laughs> which is wildly appropriate for, for who I am. That's awesome.
1: I've, I've always been a side-by-side guy, kind of grew up with them. My grandpa, my dad, my uncle, all shot side-by-sides. Um, I don't have anything real fancy right now. I I shoot 20 gauge primarily. I have an old Fox, an old Lefavor. And actually a gun I shoot a lot is, um, is a CZ side-by-side. Yeah. It's, um, if anybody's interested in a in a side by side and maybe wants to get into an entry level in terms of if price um i like my cz a lot to me it's like an old baseball glove you know it's sturdy it's reliable it's going to be around forever and it just does the job i feel like i i can shoot pretty decent with it so i always hate to leave that gun gun at home mm. um
2: are, are you talking to bob White, matt
1: uh ring neck
2: Oh, okay. So that's yep. one of the one
0: of the older ones. That's yep. Yep. Cool. What other gear do you need to be a good woodcock hunter? I mean, I would imagine. I think let's just talk about footwear to start, because footwear can be challenging with woodcock hunting because of their their nature. Uh, grouse, you can kind of stay in and just wear good boots, but woodcock, I, I have found that, you know, if there was a really good pair of sturdy cut resistant wellies like a like a Le boot that's something that I'm going to want to wear a lot because they're comfortable and they're waterproof. I have found that if I wear my regular old, you know, standard upland boots or mountain boots, invariably there's going to be birds where there's, you know, water not up to your ankles but up to your toes and it's like squishy squishy and you're going to be sad after the first half hour in that case. So do you guys do the kind of the same?
2: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a I'm a New Englander, so I'm rubber boots through and through. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, rubber boots have come such a long way. I mean, I don't think there's many brands you can buy now that don't make a, you know, good sold, you know, pretty snug fitting, you know, pullover rubber boot. Obviously, there's some brands like Gumleaf and uh, La Chamel that make, you know, zip side, stuff like that. But I found any time I have not worn rubber boots in the woods, I have regretted it. <laughs>
1: And it's wet out there right now, so I, I, I do the same. I always put on a new uh, a nice, nice pair of leather boots, and then I regret it after. So rubber boots around here when it's wet is definitely a, a go-to, um, and AJ mentioned it. Le Chameau, have a good luck with those, and Gumleaf as well would be good brands.
0: So chaps or no chaps, or tin cloth pants or no tin cloth pants?
2: Oh, man, you were just getting into it, huh? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pants guy. i'm I'm cut from that fiber if i don't ride a horse so um i i right now i i have been wearing foul ravens for uh quite some time which i really love you can actually wax them up and stuff and um they're pretty hardy for taking on new england briars which for the most part the other one talking cheap is i have a pair of wrangler upland pants that i got for like 30 bucks and i mean those things are like I mean, I feel like you can try to drive a nail through the front of them, and it's pretty tough. But the only thing is, you're not really breathable. They're not really that comfortable. But um, yeah,
0: yeah. I wore tin cloth from Filson pants, and they work great. But like like you said, they're not breathable, and man, they stink like your nads after like one season. <laughs> and you can't really put them <laughs> in the washing machine. And just oh, so I've kind of switched to the, your, your hybrid. Like I'll wear a pair of Wrangler jeans and then the 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 filson tin cloth chaps over it and that seems to help a lot and i mean it also keeps everything you know breathable as well how about you matt
1: yeah i'm not a big chaps guy for a couple reasons when you're trying to walk through some of that gnarly woodcock cover um for me chaps get hung up too much and i i like to try to be as mobile as possible and then um like when you're hunting them now it gets a little hot midday if you're still hunting then for me, chaps are a little too, too hot. And they're, I think they're too hot too, maybe for hunting in the South as well. Even if you're hunting in December or January, it can get to 70 low eighties when you're hunting down there. And they're just a little too hot for me.
0: Mm. Let's talk about that. You know, you're talking about cold and, you know, Woodcock is also unique in the sense that unless you're down South, well, even if you're down South, because then they don't get there until the winter. It's a, it's a Zephyr of a season. I mean, it's, you're hunting a migration and it's it does it start in september anywhere or is it a really october thing
2: the upper midwest i think matt your season's already open isn't it
1: yeah september 19th typically um grouse season here starts right around the september 15th and typically woodcock season is a week later and then it runs for 45 days so it's usually that third or fourth week in september it starts up up north
0: it's but it's it's a thing where The migrations only, I think you'd mentioned before, typically, I mean, it can be as little as a week to three weeks, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. We always target early October is a good time. October 15th is a good target date. After that, it can still happen from year to year. You can never really time it perfectly. But by the end of October, most of the woodcocker are gone, unfortunately, and then you're just chasing rough girls.
0: What drives them away? Is it just snow or, or freezing temperatures, or?
1: Oh, that's that's a tough one too. Um, I think there's many different theories. AJ might have some more ideas on this. It, it can be many different factors that go together. Some some say the moon the the moon phase during that time of year has something to do with it. Um, I know weather can affect them to a certain extent. I don't think it's primarily driven by weather, but if we get a huge cold front snow and wind it'll drive them through here a little quicker than typical so predicting the
2: woodcock migration is like when you start talking about things like you know storm systems moving through and all that kind of stuff is a bit like dark arts you know and depending on the crowd you're in you could either get people in agreement or you know told to leave (laughs) you know so there's always healthy debate over why things happen i mean i've heard debates over you know weak flying birds whether that actually means it's a, a flight bird or not and um, just really interesting kind of theories, uh, related to, um, why they migrate. But what I, I have found is that it's consistent in the sense of there is a pretty good ballpark. Um, and kind of like Matt saying that, yeah, a strong system might totally move birds through a little faster than thought. Um, if you pay attention to the weather above you, you know, uh, north of you and, you know, one of the driving factors I've heard biologists say. But I don't think this is necessarily true for everywhere is, you know, once that ground freezes, they can't, you know, they can't eat worms. So they have to stay below that freeze. Um, So that's that's a driving factor that I think is, uh, you know, wholly truthful, Um, whether or not that you know, they're moving out 30 days ahead of it or three days ahead of that. I don't know the answer to that, but, um, where I live, it's, it's a little different timing. Um, the best woodcock hunting as far as the migration is concerned is going to be the end of October. Um, you get down to Connecticut and it's that first kind of week of November into the second week of November. Um, there'll be, I think you can go as late as November 21st. I want to say in Connecticut. Um, I'm not, I don't hundred percent remember right now, but, um, those best days are definitely like that last week and first week in November for for New
0: England hmm. and I imagine it's December January in, in Louisiana
1: yeah I think it's roughly mid-December through the end of January typically when I go I usually go over the new year so gotcha. first week in January
0: so let's just talk a bit about there's a bit of an elephant in the room that we haven't discussed yet and that's that woodcock is kind of the red-headed stepchild of rough grouse hunting so <laughs> I can't tell you how many times have I, I have gone with someone who has great dogs, usually, you know, Michigan or Wisconsin or Minnesota, and they're, you know, they don't – sometimes they don't even shoot the woodcock, and many times they're like, man, it's a woodcock, and they really want the rough grouse. So, and I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'm just going to come out and say it. I'd rather eat a woodcock than a rough grouse just because they're more interesting my theory at least is that that is why woodcock are kind of the the second fiddle to rough grouse even though they 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 coexist and you can hunt them at the same time is that they're not a white meat bird to speak of and they have a a distinct flavor to them and they, they they're not as big and they don't and they don't fly as strong as as rough grouse but i'd like to hear your guys thoughts as well because i'm the rare person who prefers woodcock and eating and and hunting to rough grouse as much as i love rough grouse so that's it's just kind of a strong statement well
2: i know i have definitely know people like you're saying that are you know woodcocks or woodcock is incidental <laughs> um but i think an important thing where it's saying here is that you know woodcock uh presents a great opportunity for a gateway upland bird i've uh talked to people that work in the state of Mississippi about how they've talked about getting people excited for woodcock hunting to kind of rekindle this idea of um, upland hunting and therefore making people excited about recovering bobwhite populations um, because they're so achievable, because they're spread out in so many areas where there are not wild birds. Um, again, because you you go to a certain point in the woodcock states and now there's no longer any rough grouse. So. Um, and I know in the past uh, couple of years, there's been a measurable increase of woodcock hunting, particularly in the South, um, in places where there aren't other wild bird options that are viable. So um, I think that there's a new culture, especially younger people, um, you know, being a millennial, um, you know, with a brand that works a lot with millennials, um, there's this inherent interest for woodcock because uh, it's a great stepping stone. And again, the availability, if, if I still lived in Eastern Massachusetts, and had a bird dog I mean my only option is to hunt you know released pheasant or to hunt woodcock Um, so there's something to be said about that I I agree with you uh, on the food sense of you know woodcock are a flavorful bird I know other people have the opinions that it's a bad flavorful bird (laughs) but um, I think it's like anything you just need to learn how to handle it and you need to treat it like a woodcock and not like a chicken so um, I just think it's that simple.
1: I think the gateway term is a great one. You know, we talked about the hunting woodcock with young dogs. That's one thing, but if you're if you're talking about mentoring and getting new hunters into upland hunting, uh, I don't know that there's anything better than than woodcock. For for one, they're they're a wild bird. Um, they cooperate with you. You can if if you have a especially with pointing dogs, you can almost like manipulate the scene. To the, to the extent that if you have a dog on point, you can get a new shooter in position to at least have an opportunity to see the bird, if not shoot at the bird. And it's really sort of an underrated opportunity, I think, in the upland hunting world. If, if we had more young hunters or new hunters, no matter who they are, hunting woodcock, you take them on a hunt like we had here in Minnesota, where you see that many birds in one afternoon, it's, it's it really is a special thing and I think it's addicting to a certain extent I don't know who wouldn't have fun if you're in, even mildly interested in hunting who wouldn't have fun in a situation like that
0: but it's still not rough grouse hunting like neither <laughs> both of you guys both of you guys skirted the question like... <laughs>
1: well haven't you've never
2: heard the uh saying actually Matt I, actually uh, since you're on here uh me and Nick Larson were talking about this the other day because it is quoted from somebody and we couldn't figure out who it was <coughs> but um, this idea that rough grouse hunting is an act of violence. Do you know who who that's from, Matt? I, I don't. I don't. But you've heard that before, right?
1: Yeah, I've heard it.
0: Yeah, well back. It <laughs> has to be some can't. New England prancy person with patchouli. <laughs> <Anish. laughs>
2: of course, yeah, yeah. Burton Spiller or or William Harden Foster, just you know, going off Somebody there. Somebody with but, three names. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, at least for me, I've I've always found that uh, for grouse hunting, I feel like people are chasing something that birds don't inherently want to behave like. And not to go f- too far down a rabbit hole, but this is similar to this idea that we mentioned earlier about uh, woodcock running and walking from points. And back in my deer hunting days, I wrote about this theory of, um, generations of animals passing on kind of stress stressors without having to learn them. And there is a science to it. That's called uh, transgenerational stress inheritance. So essentially what that means is that if, if I'm A.J. the grouse and I go out and I have an experience with, you know, uh, my dog Grim and I survived that set experience, I am, my offspring all the way to my grandchildren birds are going to have that knowledge um, whether they experienced it or not. So I think it's actually interesting that we talk about this increase of participation of woodcock hunting in the United States. And also I feel like it's not crazy to say that this frequency of woodcock running and walking from points is more frequent nowadays and that it's becoming more uh, prevalent. And I think that that's a direct result of these birds getting an education from all sorts of novices and millennials like me that are just out there, you know, raising holy hell on these birds. Um, But grouse, you know, there are people out there that are chasing this this beautiful single point that you walk up on and the dog doesn't move a single muscle and that bird gets up there and it's an incredible thing when it happens. But the, the the bird itself, unless you're in the most remote reaches of northern Maine or, or Canada um, where they don't see dogs, they just don't want to behave like that. They inherently run. Um, it's just not it's not what they are. And I think about guys like in, in Michigan, the, the Heller brothers running rough grouse with flushing dogs. And, you know, this just fast paced and it's this intense chaos. And they're getting a lot more shooting opportunities than than folks like I would with a pointing dog um so there is this kind of really different user experience that occurs between the two of them that can make you love them it can make you hate them and striking a chord from the chucker world is you know i think people hunt grouse for revenge sometimes <laughs> you know it's like they're they're getting the best of you more often than not
0: hmm. yeah we're gonna do a whole episode on rough grouse and, and i have a, all kinds of things to say about that particular bird because i've hunted them god i think i've hunted them in all all three major regions they exist um four really i've hunted them in canada as well and you i mean you guys both know that that rough grouse in manitoba or where i live in the west they they're kind of dim to put it politically correctly (laughs) 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 like i mean there's I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a roughed grouse in the Rockies or the Uintas or in the, the Pacific Northwest. Derp, going derp, Hey, how's it going? Like, what's it going on? I think it's, are you having a good day? What's that stick you're pointing at me? And it's just it's the Western experience with, with the rough grouse. And, and you know, you. I think you're right about that inherited skittishness because they are a great game bird in the Great Lakes area in New England. And they're just not in the West.
2: Yeah, I've I've hunted them way up in northern Maine before, where you know actually a, a guy uh, Matt and I actually filmed with called the Maine chickens, um, and then he goes and trains his young dogs up on them. And I've since gotten way up into those northern reaches, and th- these birds just don't have experiences with dogs, so they're willing to stay for a point at a lot greater rate than areas that are uh, experience heavy pressure, or even areas like you know I live in central New Hampshire, there are not many you know, bird hunters with dogs around here, but these birds are wi- more wiry than anywhere. And I think part of that is just, there's people everywhere and mm. they're inherently evading people and they're passing that on. And they just, you know, that that it's just in their threads, you know, maybe if humans disappeared and a few generations of birds die out, they would get back to that Western bird mentality. But <laughs> I, I don't think anybody's going to stop hunting them at that rate anytime soon. So,
0: Mm-mm. Now we have our, our limit of woodcock, which I think is three everywhere, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, they are way easier to pluck than any of the grouse. So I discovered this kind of by accident. I used to you know, hunt them and let, let them sit for two or three days in a cooler or in a refrigerator and then pick them. And then there's one day that I didn't have that opportunity. I just had to kind of pick them that night. And they pick way easier. They're they're not as easy as doves or pigeons, but they're a lot easier than all of the other gallinaceous birds. And so that's my preamble of saying uh, hashtag give a pluck. Um, (laughs) You know, they they, again, because your limit is only three birds, I'm really not asking too much of you to pluck your woodcock. I mean, it's just not that many. Um, And it doesn't take you more than probably take you if you're a beginner, 15 minutes, maybe maybe 20 and i can i can pluck a woodcock in about 2 or 3 minutes so the reason you do that and i will send i'll put pictures in the show notes is and you guys have seen it i guarantee you woodcock can be morbidly obese like almost as fat as ducks i've seen them where the skin is full on white with fat underneath it and woodcock fat is not as good as chachalaca fat and I'm, that's probably a sentence that has never been uttered in the English. Language. <laughs> I, I mean, there is no wild fat that I've ever eaten that's better than chachalaca fat at all. With pintail fat being number two, and good, you know, good wild pig fat being number three. Bear fat can be good too, but woodcock, in is, is in terms of the upland experience, a other than the weird chachalaca bird, which is, exists in like one spot in the United States. It is the best tasting and fattest of the upland birds. Now, that doesn't mean every single one of them is going to be fat, but I will find if if I'm hunting them for three days and I get my nine birds, probably five to six of them are going to be fat, and you will never experience that if you skin your bird out. And that's that's my little soapbox for that. And I, I'll, I also like to keep the feet on them because it just looks cool and it scares people.
1: And, and please eat the legs. Oh God, yeah. You know the the number number of people that just breast them out and forget about woodcock legs. You'd think that they're small, but they're amazing. They really are.
0: So they're also this in this big category of opposite birds. So woodcock, sage grouse, um, spruce grouse, not so much um, sharp tails, but prairie chickens, and there are a few other birds that we hunt that have white meat legs. And dark meat breasts, and it goes back to what we talked about. Oh, geez, almost an hour ago now, where woodcock kind of just do that little waddly thing, and, and I love how you termed it. They they get up and walk briskly away. <laughs> <laughs> they, I mean, they don't really run so much as like I'm going to leave right now, and so they just don't have big heavy dark meat legs like a turkey would or a, or a pheasant. So yeah, they're and they're muscular little things too what is your go-to way to cook them start with aj
2: oh man um i mean i i I try to cook them in a variety because once the woodcock season comes i mean i i pretty much live off woodcock i i I, i've never i've certainly frozen woodcock plenty of times but i don't feel like they're necessarily the best bird for freezing so it's kind of like eat them while you have them um i used to not leave the skin on i will admit that i used to not de-feather them i started that last a couple years that i started doing that um i have a tendency to go towards anything italian um the other thing is that you know they're inherently an earthy flavor so mushrooms um they also respond well to kind of the flavors where they live so for where i live apples cranberry um anything like that that you you can do and then uh, if I start just going down my Italian heritage, you know, they can taste good in cacciatore. Um, they can taste even good slow cooked in, in spaghetti sauce and just let them fall apart. I mean, there's just I mean, I, I'm a firm believer that there's no wrong way to eat a woodcock. Um, I've, I've had them, you know, pate from them or if I said that correctly, uh, I've had them in a number of ways. But honestly, when I was a kid, we would just take them, uh, you know, we breast them out. And you'd throw them in a pan with a little butter and you'd cook them. And uh, they're meant to be eat, eaten, you know, medium rare. Um, so right. people shouldn't be afraid of doing that. So I, I'm very much of the cloth that there's two ways to ultimately handle the meat. You either severely overcook it, meaning in a place that's slow cooking like spaghetti sauce, um, where they do have chance to still stay moist, or you have to inherently undercook them like medium rare. If you do that meat, if you do that, cooked them all the way through uh methodology you are you were bound to get uh you know rubber so
0: it's like squid yeah <laughs> squid's the same way like squid's either you know 60 seconds or two hours yes matt
1: yeah i'm not a very good cook to be real honest with you well so I, you
0: are uh, from minnesota and I'm... <laughs> <laughs> exactly well said. everybody all of my listeners from minnesota are about to throw heavy objects
1: at me. <laughs> um i do it super simple um either pan seared or on the grill. Just uh, flip them quick with a little salt and pepper. Make sure they're medium rare to rare. If you go any uh, more than that, I don't think they're very good. And I just like, I personally like the the earthy flavor. I just like to kind of taste it wild that way. And then with the legs, I, I like to grill them and then serve a, it's always fun to serve a pan of woodcock legs to your friends as an, <laughs> as an appetizer leave the feet on them so they look kind of gnarly
0: and, totally uh, totally that's a great i wish. was hoping you were going to say leave the feet on them because a it's a handle and b it's like an adams family appetizer
1: <laughs> i think aj has a picture of me choking on one of those in new york somewhere um Have we I we actually I found a video this oh morning Oh my god
0: the we're... dirty <laughs> joke of choking on a warm-up. I can't I can't resist it <laughs> I said it I said this it. morning
2: I was going through video files cuz we had some stuff from TikTok that we were doing with Project Upland and However it had gotten in there, there was a video clip of you biting that uh, woodcock leg that came off that grill when we were in <laughs> New York. I actually, I, I got to send it to you because it, it's funny because you you take a big old bite, bite out of it, start chewing and just have a smile on your face. <laughs> uh,
1: got a uh, bone down the throat. And
2: <laughs> if you ever get a chance to go to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Hank, um, the guys over there make um, poppers out of the legs you know so they do like the legs yeah so they do like cream cheese um jalapeno um and wrap them in bacon and they debone the leg um and essentially like they leave the foot on you know so you grab it by the foot and you just bite into them and i mean they're just oh absolutely incredible and the other way matt you probably remember this mark fouts at rgs I went a couple times to the corporate office and he would cook them on like a George Foreman and they were just incredible every time. And he'd do them for lunch and I'm trying to remember how he did them. You ever make that for you? No, I don't remember that. No. And yeah, it's, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. But, um. and then I guess I didn't say it earlier, Hank. I mean, you, you probably, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier is aging Woodcock is, phenomenal. Um I'm a firm believer that all meat should be aged. <laughs> and in fact, if if people don't know any meat you buy in in the supermarket is aged just for that reason cuz it tastes better. Um so I usually, you know, throw the woodcock in my refrigerator for a few days uh with the guts in and then I'll come back to them and and work with them from there.
0: So Yeah, I do the same thing. I I I even though you can pluck them earlier. There isn't any point because they, they lose all their heat pretty quick because they're not very big birds. And as long as you keep them cool and, you know, which means a cooler when you get back to the truck and then the refrigerator for a few days. I mean, uh, you can leave them for seven days. I've done this on road trips where, you know, I've shot birds in Michigan and I don't get home for seven, eight days later and they're fine. As long as you keep them cold, cold, cold. You know, I mean, you don't have to be freezing. But the, if you're going to do the traditional aging like you would a pheasant, which is about 50 degrees Fahrenheit um i don't know that woodcock would handle it for more than three or four days without getting a little iffy yeah
2: that's how i usually go about that three-day mark we did it matt you i think you were still working with us at project upland when we did that article with chrissy mason right yeah yeah and i
1: yeah she went into the history like way way back from england when they used to used to age woodcock and uh and then talked a little bit about it. I think she tried it as an experiment herself and uh, that's all in the article
0: yeah yeah I did a lot of scientific work on uh, I read all the studies because they're all actual real good meat science studies on aging game birds in the United Kingdom and in Australia New Zealand where you can buy game so they so because they you can do that there have been legit meat science stuff on it and the, the consensus that the papers came out was for all upland birds the sweet spot is 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit for you know for five days for pheasants, and you know that people have hung them for longer, but the general when they do taste tests among regular normal humans, um, five days at 50 degrees is the optimal spot for pheasants, and they said between three and five days for smaller birds like partridges and woodcock.
2: You Hank, that is your expertise. I have no <laughs> doubt that you can probably outcook us on woodcock uh any day of the week.
0: <laughs> I will also just want to add one little piece to the freezing bit because I don't I don't get a chance to hunt them very often because I'm fifteen to hundred to two thousand miles away from the nearest 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 place where they live. Um, I will freeze them. And if you vacuum seal them, you do have to take the feet off because feet will break a vacuum seal. Um, if you do vacuum seal them and they keep the seal, they will keep for two years in a freezer, and they'll be just fine. Now, but if you got if they break seal because they're oddly shaped, then you got to cook them right away. You're not going to fill your freezer with woodcock, which is not going to happen. So it's kind of a ceremonial deal where you're going to have one or ten great meals of this bird and then move on to whatever the next thing is.
2: Yes, I have yet to fill my freezer with woodcock. <laughs> Life of a grouse and woodcock hunter and filling the freezer are not uh, not usually in the same sentence.
0: The closest I've ever heard of it is there's some guys from Wisconsin who really put the wood to rough grouse. I mean, there's guys who will kill like 60 rough grouse in a year. And, and, wow. And they will eat, you know, they'll gorge themselves on rough grouse and then they'll still have enough in, in the freezer. Wisconsin's kind of the, the, the sleeper state. So everybody talks about the Minnesota Northwoods or the UP or things like that, and the problem with Minnesota or with Wisconsin is that virtually all of the really good grouse spots, are, I think, are either private or they're closely guarded by people who will never tell you ever, ever, ever where they are. All right, guys, we have been going for an hour and a half. This may be the single longest episode of Hunt Gather Talk. Yeah. Uh, so thank before we go, um, tell people where they can find you and. And, you know, where you are on social media or in your case, the Project Upland and and, and Covey Rise magazine. So let's start with Matt.
1: Yeah, um, my email is Soberg M. That's S-O-B-E-R-G-M at CoveyRiseMagazine.com. Social media almost everywhere is at Matt Soberg. And uh, if you want to check out Covey Rise magazine, it's just CoveyRiseMagazine.com. Pretty easy.
2: Yeah. projectupland.com is, is really kind of the hub for my universe as the creative director over there. Um, you know, same thing, just simple search on Instagram. We're really active on Instagram. Um, it's probably the best way to kind of interact with the brand. Um, you know, we do have our other brands like endless migration. We just launched another magazine called hunting dog confidential. Um, which is kind of an international journey and even includes big game and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, Craig Koshik is actually the editor-in-chief of that. So, yeah, projectupland.com is pretty much the hub of our universe or endlessmigrationhunt.com. And uh, you can pretty much find your way to me through any of those routes.
0: Cool. I actually link to Project Upland on virtually every episode of this podcast because you guys have great background articles on how to get started pursuing pretty much every one of the animals that i've covered in this season
2: except the chuckalaca
0: except the chakalaka <laughs> uh, but but that could come
2: we're gonna resolve that we will resolve that i don't think we're gonna be doing a how-to chuckalaka hunt unless you're gonna do that for us but uh we're at least gonna do a species profile
0: oh, I mean, now you got me going again because the god the fat on that bird is so amazing but that is, an, that is another story. Anyway, guys, thank you for being on the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. Be safe in the woods, shoot straight, and pluck your birds.
2: Thank you. Nice
1: talking to you. Nice talking to you, Matt. Yep, you too, AJ. Thanks, Hank.
0: Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast, brought to you by hunt to eat and Filson. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and remember to follow me on social media. I am at HuntGatherCook on Instagram. I run a private Facebook group called Hunt, Gather, Cook, which you have to answer questions to get in. Just do that, and I will let you in the group. It is a Borg-like mind meld of 20,000 people, all interested in being better at working with wild foods, everything from... Upland game birds to big game to fish to wild mushrooms and edible wild plants. That is the Hunt Gather Cook group on Facebook. My website is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is honest food.net, or you can get to it from huntgathercook.com. Hunter Angler Gardener Cook is the core of what I do. There are more than 1,000 recipes and techniques and tricks and tips for working with all sorts of wild game, fish, and wild edible plants and mushrooms on that website. I have been running it nonstop since 2007. Come visit it at HuntTogetherCook.com. It is Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. Take care, be safe, shoot straight, and eat well. I'm your host, Hank Shaw, and I will talk to you next week we hey,